John Harris's incredible depth of knowledge into the history of Australia, both Indigenous and European settlement, is shown in his many books on the subject, especially his powerful book entitled One Blood. It was such a privilege to sit down with John in the chapel of St. Mark's Theological College in Canberra and discuss his parents' work and legacy as Bible translators in the Northern Territory. His own research into the relationship between the Indigenous people and the church in Australia and the many stories of faithful people who have shared the gospel with others. While often a hard story to hear, our history needs to be remembered and learned from, and John's passionate work in this area is so valuable. I'm Carl Fays, and this is my interview with John Harris. John, tell me about your dad and what work he did. Well, my father was called to the ministry in the 1930s, and uh, as soon as he was ordained and had done some uh, work in a couple of parishes, he was desperate to go to North Australia. Mm. And there he was a chaplain to all of the Anglican missions, but his main love was Bible translation. Wow. Did he, did he do that? What, what did he do yes, in Bible translation? Yes, he translated into what we then called Nungabuyu, but they've now shortened to Wuboy. Uh, and he translated, I have it here. Oh, look at that. This is his original translation of, of Luke's Gospel. And that's um, all in hand. His that's own all hand his on. own hand in here. I can read you. Look, look at this. Jesus Christ, the beginning of the good story of Jesus Christ. Now God, now in Jajun, the Son wow. of God. Did he? And he worked with local people. He worked obviously. with local people on that um, during during the war years. That's why this is on um, uh, Red Cross <laughs> paper that they sent out to the troops. And uh, after Dad had finished. And left, he, he left for various reasons in the end, uh, and uh, although he loved the work. And the mission was not so interested. There was that yep. days when missions thought it was all to be an English-speaking future yep. Yep. and, you know, and all that kind of thing. And translation didn't happen for a long time. But the local people, these two women, yep. uh, their children and their granddaughters, their grandchildren, continued to work on this. They did write... Thousand, a thousand handwritten pages. That's that's all their work. This is their work, uh, handwritten handwritten pages. It took My them fifty goodness. years. Fifty years. It took them fifty years to complete uh, the whole New Testament and parts of the Old, and and there it is. And there it is. Look at that. Yeah. My goodness. That and and this is fifty years of work. Yeah, fifty years of work by voluntary, uh, the the ladies of. Number one. Wow. What do you feel when you see this? Well, it, it made me weep. When I went to the uh, dedication of that in Number one, yeah. you know, about 10 years ago, they had had T-shirts printed and across them was Anambala Man Analawur, the first words of my father's translation. That must you know, have been so The beginning moving. of a good story. Wow. Well, how, did, how did that influence you and what you went on to do, John? Well, I suppose I never thought of it being an influence, but I realised that it was, that, that the idea that the gospel be in someone else's yeah. language and not in your own was just natural to me. Why, why would people not want it in their own language? Yeah. And uh, so, yes, it certainly influenced now, me. One of, the, one of the, the heritages that you picked up from your dad and his work was your own commitment to the Indigenous people of Australia. 
Yes, well, I certainly drifted back to the, the Northern Territory and to Indigenous people, and it was wonderful to go back to Grid Island as principal of the school and be welcomed there as someone who belonged, yeah. you know, because I had a name and a clan and everything else that they'd given me as a baby. And uh, I, I grew to know and love Aboriginal people throughout my whole life. And I got involved with Bible translation. I mean, I was able to do it freely because I was being paid by the government in other roles. So I got into Bible translation committees. I, you know, assisted uh, mm. Bible translators in all sorts of ways. And eventually I became director of Bible translation in the Bible Society. So tell us about translation of the Bible into Indigenous languages and how it was published. Well, the translation of the Bible into Indigenous languages began with the very first people who were formally appointed as missionaries. Uh, William Walker learnt some language and actually believed that, you know, you should be sitting with Aboriginal people in a circle talking their language. Uh, William Watson at Wellington uh, learnt some Aboriginal language and translated some of the Bible into Wiradjuri. Uh, Threlkel translated Luke's Gospel with Viraban into uh, Awabagal, but well, that was never published. The first published scripture, mm -hmm. the first actual scripture is this one. This is Ngarinjeri, a scripture around the mouth of the Murray in South Australia. Yeah. And that's uh, a wonderful piece published in 1864. And several times since then, up to very recently, the Ngarinjeri people, when they remember their culture, when they remember their language, they, they get in touch with the Bible Society and say, can you publish this again? Wow. Yeah. Because it's now part of their history. Something else which is part of history is this one, because this is the Gospel of Mark in the language of Murray Island. Mm. That's Miriam Mare, and that is the language of Eddie Marbo, oh. who was, of course, a Christian. Yeah. And uh, all of the people on the Marbo case were Christians. Yeah. And, uh, and that was uh, very important, that language and that, that island and that culture was an extremely point, important thing in Aboriginal land rights. Well, that's wonderful. Yes. So, John, you wrote this fabulous book, One Blood, which is uh, clearly a labour of love. Uh, why write this book? Well, I've been going to write this book all my life. Yeah. You know, this is my, this is my life. You know, I was going to write this book. I collected uh, missionary diaries, newspaper cuttings. I had filing cabinet after filing cabinet after filing cabinet full of them, and that's what I was going to do when I retired. That was my big uh, research and writing job. But long before I retired, some people wiser than me said, John, you've got to write this book now, mm. because if you don't write it, someone who is antagonistic to the church is going to write it. Mm. Now, it's not that this is a warts and all book. Yep. It's with love to the church. But it says this is where the church went wrong and this is where the church went right. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it, it's, it, it's a cutting book in that way. Yeah. It, for, for those who haven't read the book or don't know about it, what is the content of One Blood? The content of One Blood is the story of the interaction between Christianity and Aboriginal people from 1788 until the book was written in the 1990s. That's, that's, that's a fantastic work. And look, interestingly, there's, it's not just one story in the sense that it wasn't like something started and nothing changed over those years. They're, they're real periods of, of different shifts and changes. Let's go back to the beginning. Why did, why did the British Empire think it was okay just to turn up and take the land? 
Well, that's the terra nullius thing. That is that open land, uh, land which nobody owns, is free for the taking. Now, the only place in the world that that could see, be seen to perhaps be true might be Antarctica. You could, there, yeah. Nobody claims it. You could claim a bit. But when it came to Australia, well, they had to twist the rules. Mm. Now, terra nullius says this is an empty land and anyone can take it. So how do they know it's an empty land? Well, when they come, they see no wharves, they see no church steeples, they see no fences, uh, guns, they see no anything which they would regard as the evidence of civilization. Mm. Civilization has not come here, so these people cannot own it. They don't understand ownership, yeah. they do not own it. They forage over it like an animal, but they do not own it. Yeah. What, what was on the land then? Because uh, there, there were numbers of nations here at that point. There were. And the newcomers did not perceive the boundaries. Mm. They did not perceive the land that had been tilled. They did not perceive the fish traps. They did not perceive, you'll see this in my book on Macquarie, mm. they did not perceive that the harbour had a hundred names for every rock and cranny and little part of the, of the Sydney Harbour because it was a known and loved and looked after Aboriginal place. They yeah. perceived none of that. They looked for European structure. Yeah. And, and that then created, you know, terrible tension, didn't it? Well, it did indeed. Mm. They didn't think that uh, Aboriginal people cared about where they were. They could just force them back and they could just kill kangaroos in some other place, mm. you know. Yeah. We know that the chaplains, uh, Johnson and Marsden, didn't see... Uh, mission or taking to the gospel to Indigenous people as uh, any interest to them. When did missionary work start among Indigenous people? Well, the Methodists were the first to send an actual missionary, which is William Walker. And uh, he actually baptised the first Aboriginal Christian, the son of Benelong, the famous Benelong. He baptised him and he named him Thomas Benelong and he went and preached the gospel. This is the interesting thing. As soon as he's baptised, he went out preaching the gospel. Sadly, he died within a few months, but that, that was William Walker. Mm. Uh, you know. And soon after him, uh, more missionaries began to be sent out. CMS sent missionaries who went out to Wellington, and then there was uh, Threlkeld who was sent to the Lake Macquarie area and so on. So in the 1830s, 1840s, you start to get people who are sent as missionaries. Mm. One can perhaps forgive the Johnsons, you know, and the Marsdens because they were busy people anyway. They had other work, but yeah. and they were not told that was their job. Yeah. How influential were these missionaries? I think they were very influential uh, in in the places where they were, and they battled extreme odds. The missionaries at uh, out at Bathurst and Wellington had to deal with the death, not just from massacre, but the death from diseases. Mm. Uh, Aboriginal people dying of European diseases in huge numbers, and most of their work ended up being caring for the, the ill. Yeah. And actually, they got, a, they got respected for that. You know, the missionaries actually cared. And, it, and if someone was sick, you could go to the missionary. This podcast is brought to you by the Ministry of Olive Tree Media. Our vision is to create a library of resources that tell the story of the game-changing message of Jesus. This interview was recorded for our latest documentary, Faith Runs Deep. 
our other award-winning series, Jesus the Game Changer and Towards Belief, plus many other small group, church and school series are available on our Watch Plus platform for a small monthly partnership. As you partner with us, you not only get access to compelling video content and interactive discussion guides, but you also support the creation of more resources that help share the gospel message. To become a partner and get access to Faith Runs Deep, visit olivetreemedia.com.au. In those early years, if we, if we can call the first 50 years the early sure. years, we look back now and, and say the church wasn't what it needed to be. But there are those that say that missionaries were really the only people who cared for the future of, of the indigenous people of this nation. Well, that is true. Um, missionaries did care. And although uh, missionaries get criticised for proselytising, you know, for forcing, which I don't believe they ever really did, but for forcing the gospel into Aboriginal people, uh, the truth is that other people didn't care what happened to them at all. And so, you know, it's very difficult to balance these things. You've got missionaries who maybe have been bringing Christendom and trying to force European ways of life on people, but other people who simply wanted them dead or at least out of sight. Yeah. Um, you don't have the more enlightened. You've got to wait a couple of hundred years for that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, and I know an academic has written that, you know, really missionaries, dogged evangelical missionaries were the only people that actually cared. Do you know much about John Gribble? Yes, well, uh, John Gribble did care and John Gribble... Uh, had a, this mission, as you know, in the south of New South Wales at Warringester and so on. And there he brought desperate Aboriginal people who had nowhere to go. Mm. Because if you look at a map, if you look at a map of the way in which um, land in New South Wales, let's say, was given, and you, watch, you get map after map after map, you see more and more of New South Wales all covered in land grant and Aboriginal people not allowed, being shot if they crossed the fences, kept from their water holes and everything. Yeah. And so we had desperate people coming to Warringester Mission. Yeah. And yeah. eventually he was appointed to Western Australia. Yeah, yeah. And there in Western Australia, he went to the northwest of Western Australia and he encountered what you could call nothing else but slavery. Mm. Yeah. And there, he, he, this angry man tried to end slavery, but of course that put him offside with the government and everybody else, and he was drummed out of the place. What some people would not realise, John, is that, that here's someone like Gribble and his contemporaries uh, desperately trying to help these Indigenous people, but he's actually standing against the settlers who want the land and, and to be rid of these people. Exactly. And that is why, in his case particularly, it was the settlers who were lobbying governments and so on to get rid of Gribble because mm. he was a thorn in their flesh. He was teaching Aboriginal people that there was such a thing as justice, you know, and that they ought not to be being treated in the way they were. Yeah. And that unfortunately, I would have to say that the settlers, who were very powerful donors to the churches, mm. were able to convince the churches to, to withdraw him. Yeah. I want to look at two areas of, that, of, of, of the churches and their involvement. But starting, firstly, starting there, we would look at that and go, how could you possibly allow that to happen? As you researched One Blood, what, how did you answer that? It's a dark part of our history. It's a dark part of our history that people believe that Aboriginal people were a dying race and that almost excused the fact that they didn't really have to do much for them. Uh, the land grab was more important than the lives of Aboriginal people. Of course, there were Christians 
all the time who were preaching against that, you know, that, that this was wrong. It was very true of uh, Christian clergy uh, in the early years of the 1800s that they were very outspoken against the abuse, the mistreatment of Aboriginal people. Uh, even here, uh, Catholic Archbishop John Bede Paulding. Some of our colonists in justification of great crime believe these black men are not of our race. We know how false this is. One soul of theirs, like one of our own souls, is worth more than all the cattle on the Bathurst Plains. Mm. Wow. And this is Baptist clergyman John Saunders. Does it seem strange to speak of the majesty of the New Hollanders? Would you despise the saviour of the world? Then despise not those for whom he died. Yeah. Now, this is powerful stuff coming from early colonial clergy. Yeah. I want to jump forward to another area, which is a, um, a very difficult area in our history that's referred to as the Stolen Generation. Who were the Stolen Generation and what was happening? The Stolen Generation were those children who were removed from their families, but not just in the same way that a, a white child, a European child might be removed, let's say, for mm. negligence or whatever. In other words, a child who was born to an Aboriginal family could be presumed to be not cared for by, by law. It didn't, you didn't need anything else mm. just to have Aboriginal blood. And beginning, I mean, it happened a little bit in the late 1800s, but really it's in the early 1900s and up. It was still going on until the 1950s, 1960s. Mm -hmm. Almost any Aboriginal child could be removed. I went to Teachers College in the 1950s with, with a, a man whom I met in later life who said, you didn't know I was part Aboriginal, did you? And I said, no, I didn't. And he said, my father said, don't let on. Don't say, because they'll take you. Oh, wow. You know, he believed that even, and here he was in teacher's college with me. Yeah. But so these children were taken, and they were taken as early as they could, and they were consciously taken away from their own communities. They were consciously brainwashed, so they had no knowledge of where they came from. And the idea is that they would be raised into a lower class employees to labourers and domestic servants yeah. and so on. And in that process, the church was complicit. The church was complicit. Firstly, our biggest, I think, uh, biggest error was we did not speak out against it. We were not prophetic. But secondly, the church very rarely took children. I'm not saying never, but very rarely did the church take children. But they did receive these children into orphanages and so on that were run by the church. So they were complicit in the accepting of these mm. children who were brought to them by police or truant officers or whatever. Yeah. Given where we sit right now with all of that history, how do you, what do you see as the way forward? The, the way forward is, is through Aboriginal people themselves. We in the church, who should have been better than the secular authorities, have not been better. We should have been better at empowering and assisting and supporting Aboriginal Christian people to be the Aboriginal Indigenous peoples of this land. But we have given them abysmal support, really. Hmm. Here and there, yes, a little light shines that we've done something. But really, we do not care as much as we ought about our Aboriginal sisters and brothers uh, throughout Australia struggling in, against immense odds. Yeah. You know, people often say to me, well, how wonderful it is that I've 
been so helpful and, and influential over Aboriginal people, how helpful I must have been to them. I say I've learnt so much more from them that they ever learnt from me. Mm. To see Aboriginal people struggling today to be the church, a struggling little band of people in a community fraught with death, fraught with family violence, drugs, and alcoholism, and the little Christian band tries to keep together. And there, one minister who I won't name the place or everything else, year before last, took 52 funerals. How do you preach or prepare a Bible study or something like that, when your whole year is spent in crisis management, anger management and grief. Mm. And we support them badly. Yeah. Tell me the, the title One Blood. Where does the title One Blood come from? Well, that comes from the book of Acts. God hath made of one blood all nations of men who dwell upon the face of the earth. And they've got these namby-pamby translations of it in modern Bibles. God has made all human beings. God has made us all one yeah, or something. Yeah. But, but I love the old translation. God has made us of one blood. That's DNA. You know, that's visceral. Right? God has made us of one blood. Now, you named the book that, but that was, that, that was important very early on in Australian history, wasn't it? Almost every missionary wrote it in their diary. You know, they underlined it and underlined it, I think on their bad days, reminding themselves of the deep truth of that. No matter what happens, we are one blood. So John, who was Nathaniel Pepper? Well, Nathaniel Pepper was one of the uh, first, probably the first uh, Aboriginal Christian in Victoria. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that is interesting about Nathaniel Pepper is uh, he perceived that had the missionaries not come, the Aboriginal people of his region would have been shot out. Yeah. And he, he understood that and that the role of the missionaries, which is insufficiently understood and insufficiently acknowledged, is that missions provided a safe haven where the police or the others, the squatters or the settlers shooting them, uh, could not get them. Mm. And uh, he, he recognised that, and that was a you know, very important thing. Uh, one of the evangelists, Indigenous evangelists, was Barnabas Roberts. Tell us about his story. Well, Barnabas Roberts came from the Europa River region in the Northern Territory. The community is now called Ngukur, where his descendants now live. He, like Nathaniel uh, Pepper, is one who famously said, if the missionaries hadn't come, my people would all have been shot down because the... Uh, Settlers are going through the Roper Valley, removing the Aboriginal people so that they were not uh, spearing the cattle and all the rest of it and shooting uh, Aboriginal people in their hundreds. And it was because of that that the Anglican Church Missionary Society actually set up a mission. Um, famously, Bishop Frodsham said they are like, like an Aboriginal Lazarus mm -hmm. lying at the doorway of Australia with uh, no one to care for them. And so those people of that region were saved uh, by the mission and gave them a safe haven. Mm. And Barnabas Roberts went on to become an evangelist. He was a, a, a fairly, a man of short stature and he had a foot that went that way sideways because of an accident on a horse. Mm. And he walked 
hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles uh, preaching the gospel. And he said something which I think is almost beyond belief. But with all the horror of the killing of his people, he felt that if the gospel was being preached to his people, that it could even have been worth the cost. Mm. And towards his, the end of his days, he was brought in a wheelchair. Someone put him on a plane in a wheelchair. He'd been around still in his wheelchair trying to take the gospel to some remote place. No one quite knows. But he was put on a plane, turned up in Darwin, had something pinned on his shirt with the name of missionary as unconscious. And uh, he was picked up and looked after for a while until he died. And he said, I am free of the blood of my people. I am free of the blood of my people. I mean, Barnabas thought that he could atone. Barnabas thought that he could give his life in atonement for the slaying of his people. Wow. That's a, that's a remarkable life and statement. Yes. They bought a, um, a bus in him, was bought in his memory, and they called it Barnabas <laughs> <laughs> um, to take clergy around, you know, and so take people around and mission, you know, people yeah. around the Barnabas. But his legacy lives on because his granddaughter, Marjorie Roberts, now Marjorie Hall, uh, is uh, one of the two church leaders at Mukur today. Wow. John, translation still happens yes. today. It does. Um, what are some of the books that are happening now? Well, this is the latest one in which I've been involved. This mm. is the Nyunger Gospel of Luke. And Nyunger is the language of Perth and of mm. the southwest of Western Australia, a damaged language, a dying language. So we have, we have in here the... the Nyunga on this side, mm -hmm. and here we have the English, not the English from an English Bible, but a translation of the Nyunga back into English, mm -hmm. so that you've got an exact translation. And down here we have a glossary, a little dictionary of all the new words on the page so that people can learn the language. And this is now accepted in Western Australian institutions as the model of how the language should be spoken. Now that's any institution? Secular, yes. This, this is now how it should be spoken. And this, this took us 20 years. 20 to years find away. the words, to find the language, to relearn the language, to speak to all of the old people, to put it back together, to get it on paper. It took us 20 years. And some of the greatest of our helpers and translators did not live to see it. Mm. One of those was Pastor Lynn Wallam of the Church of Christ uh, church in Bunbury, Western Australia, our chairman. And uh, he, he did not live, he died. But his daughter told me that he had always been an angry man because his language had been beaten from him. He was flogged if he spoke his language in school and so on. And he'd put his language back down into a dark place where it was irretrievable. Mm. And the first meeting 
of the translation group were actually going to translate. They wanted a parable and they said, let's translate the prodigal son. And we just translated a verse or two. It was Saturday and he went back to Bunbury to preach. And he preached on the prodigal son. And he just got his written bit of paper that had those first few verses and he read them in his own language. Before that he had preached like this all the time with his fist clenched as an angry man. And after he read those words in Nyunga in his own language, he opened his hands like that with his palms towards the people. And ever after he preached with his palms towards the people. Finding his own language. That's right. Finding his heart language, the language in which he understood God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John, I want to jump forward. 1959, Billy Graham comes to Australia. Famous, famous gatherings around the country. In Melbourne, in the MCG, you were there. I was there. Well, you see, in 1959, I was a national serviceman. Right? And uh, I was at uh, Pakapanyal in Victoria uh, doing national service. And you're allowed to apply for a, a weekend off. Mm -hmm. And uh, I and a friend of mine from Victoria applied for a weekend off, got permission, and we went down to the crusade. Right? And my friend had been training in the choir before he'd got called up into national service. And he said, well, all my mates are in the choir, all my friends are in the choir, I can get us into the choir. So we got around the back way into the back entrance and we got put in the choir, except we stuck out, you know, like a sore thumb because here we are in our military uniform, which you're not allowed to take off. Yeah. You know, we had to yeah. be, you know, so we'd behave in Melbourne, I suppose. But we had our, our military uniforms on and there we sat in the choir and went through, the, you know, the whole thing. But there was Billy Graham preaching and preaching, you know, and, uh, and when he finished, he did the Billy Graham thing, come down, you know, to about, you know, the call down to, to take Christ into your life, you know, come down, come down from the back stalls, come down from there, and he turns around to the choir and says, come down, come down from the choir. And then he says, yes, doesn't matter, you guys in the, in the military uniform, come down. <laughs> so you got a personal invitation. That's right. So I had a personal invitation to come down uh, and, you know, from Billy Graham himself. So therefore, I've never lost it. In that, in that moment as a young man, what did you think in a, in a stadium like that? I, I thought it was wonderful. I was terribly, terribly impressed. I mean, I was a Christian then. Mm. Uh, I'd been a Christian since I was an early child. Uh, in my early childhood, but um, I was so pleased mm. and so excited to be, you know, as a young man, seeing something Christian and big, like you, yeah. you know how young people, you want to belong to something yeah. bigger than yourself, yeah. you don't want to be the little tiny yeah. group, and so it was wonderful to me. Do you think there was much, it, it, just, again, I'm not asking you, did you know of research, but as a young man in Australian culture, did you think that had a, a bit of an ongoing influence or did it come and go? Oh, I think it had a huge influence. Um, largely through those people who came to Christ at the crusade. And many of them went on to make a significant uh, contribution to the Australian church. Uh, leaders of many denominations. Uh, Archbishop Peter Jensen, for example, Archbishop of Sydney, was converted at the Billy Graham crusade. So, you know, it's, uh, it had a huge and lasting influence and there's still this kind of effect 
that goes on through the church today. Wow. So, John, going back into your history, how did you become a Christian? Well, I've always been a Christian as long as I can remember. I used to be jealous of those people in our, my youth group who could stand up and say, at you know the fifteenth of April at ten o'clock, you know, you know, I found Jesus, and I'm sure they did. And I wished I'd had an exciting conversion, mm. but I don't remember when I wasn't a Christian. The first word I learned to read was Jesus. I was a fidgety child in church, and my mother would give me her big old Bible and say. Find the letter J, you know, and I got good at finding this capital letter J for Jesus, you see, but it was also the J for John. Mm. So I learned, I learned to read from the Bible. I learned eventually, I learned to find the word Jesus. And I can still hear my mum today when I'm about to do something that's not the right thing. I can hear her saying, find Jesus, John, find Jesus. That's very good advice, mm. actually. But I want to tell you something about my mother and mission. Because we used to sing a hymn, you may remember it, you're old enough to remember it, from Greenland's icy mountains, from India's coral strands, the missionary hymn about the world going, the world, the gospel going through the world to Greenland, India, China, and it had all this, it was like an, at, like an atlas, and I used to love the hymn. But it had a verse in it which said, the heathen in his blindness bows down to wood and stone and I felt my mother stiffen and she put a hand on my shoulder and she said not in blindness Johnny not in blindness but in his hunger hmm. the hunger for the divine is in all peoples and Aboriginal people through their own ways, their culture and religion were seeking for God and God was already here and with them but what they didn't have was the story of Jesus. Mm. God was with Aboriginal people long before Jesus trod the earth. And what missionaries should have been doing was simply sitting down around their campfire and telling them a story and not trying to turn them into Englishmen. Hmm. It's a great thought. So, John, this series is called Faith Runs Deep. How do you see faith running deep in Australia? I think that faith is deepening in Australia because... Um, in a sense, we are up against more and more. So you, your faith has to be deep to sort of hold against secularism, to hold fast against everything is relational, everything is relative, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. These are becoming hard things to hold our faith mm. against. And so people of faith today need to have a deep faith. Mm. And so, But I have some confidence because of that. I don't see... Christian faith diminishing. I see Christian faith increasing. I'm very impressed with Christian young people today. I think we are seeing a new group of Christian young people who understand things of this society that I don't. I'm old, I'm 81. You know, 
I'm glad to be handing over to young people who understand oh. the issues of today. Uh, and I see strong, strong Aboriginal mm. uh, Christian people holding uh, the faith in communities of, of horror, holding the faith against pain and tragedy, and still holding the faith. One of them quoted to me not long ago, how, how could you cope though he slay me? Yet will I trust him, mm. though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Amen. Thank you for joining me on this podcast as I unearth stories of faith in Australia. To watch the full Faith Runs Deep series and all Olive Tree Media content, go to olivetreemedia.com.au and sign up to the Watch Plus platform and partner with us today.